again. This is Texas Storytellers, brought to you by Woodlands Online. You can watch this show if you want to on Woodlands Online, our Roku channel over the air at KVQT HD21. You can listen to this on woodlandsonline.com slash podcast or iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or watch the video version. And you can see both of us. I'm Terry Woods. And this is Dixie Cooper. Today, we would like to continue talking about Horton Foot. When we talked last time, we, we mentioned that Horton Foot, of course, is from Texas and local Texas for us. Because he was uh, brought up in Wharton, Texas, which is about, I don't know, an hour or so outside of Houston. And it, the stories that he tells are all small town feel stories. That's what really warmed me up to Wharton Foot. He lived to be in his 90s. And he, right up until the end, he was writing and writing and writing. He had a group of stories that um, actually is can be shortened into like nine acts, and sometimes they're separated out. And one such story that was separated out was 1918. They even made it into a movie. Horton Foote wrote the screenplay. And uh, I'm sure that you remember that Horton Foote also wrote the screenplay for A Trip to Bountiful and other, and other movies that he actually got awards for. All quite very interesting. When he passed away in, in 2009 in Chicago, they had a great big revival of um, uh, Trip to Bountiful. And his daughter, uh, Haley, was instrumental in that. She, was an act she is an actress in her own right. And she was also in the play 1918 when it was performed off-Broadway. So I want to read you part of what they talked about for the off-Broadway version. And they call it his final gift. In his final gift to the theater, Foote has created a work of gentle existentialism. It asks, why do things happen in life the way that they do? That Foote's, that's his central character. Always his central character accepts whatever comes. Kind of a very warm Zen feeling. Each of the pieces in his works for this series stands alone. It can be taken in a great big gulp. Or it can be just read in short scripts or performed in short ways so that you kind of can imagine what's going on each time. The cycle is set during the first three decades of the 20th century in the fictional, fictional town of Harris, Texas, based on Foote's native Wharton. Still reeling from the effects of civil war and reconstruction, further changes, changes disrupt the town, including a shift in the economic dynamic, a war, a flu pandemic, a flu pandemic, 
Well, that sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? Sure it does. Absolutely. Dixie? Oh, my goodness. Yep. In 1918? Do you know anything? You know, Dixie's been a history teacher before. Do you know anything about the the epidemic from 1918? I know some, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, The origins are controversial. One source I read believes it actually started in Kansas, in the United States, when swine, uh, a disease they had, actually did cross into and was able to be transmitted to humans. But there's controversy on that, too. Some think it started in Southeast Asia, others in other places. But it was blamed a lot in, in 1918 on Germany in that we were at war with them. And so anything the Germans would do or not do was, you know, we were highly against it, or most people were in America. So uh, it spread worldwide, tremendously worldwide. The the world war that was going on at the time helped with that quite a bit, with the amount of travel that was going on, the and especially with the soldiers and the way that they were living in those trenches, which spread every kind of disease imaginable. So it was a horrible, absolutely horrible pandemic. In the United States, about 675,000 people were killed of the Spanish flu. They died from that. So that was, and today, our pandemic today, there's been up to date around close to 200,000, which is horrible in itself. But the Spanish flu was devastating. It was devastating. I understand just like now, um, uh, School was closed uh, all throughout the United States, and the buildings were used in many cases as hospitals. Um, my uh, GED class, we were looking at some pictures, and even though schools were closed, they never shut down learning or whatever. Kids were outside. You saw pictures of their chairs of. Uh, uh, from uh, 1918, other little chairs and little desks out by the trees. And if they lived in the Northeast, then they had their little coats on, their scarves on, and and they were all masked. Everyone everyone was masked um, in some form or fashion. And um, uh, they remained in school, but outside. Mostly because their buildings were being used for other reasons, as I said, like hospitals mm-hmm. and so forth. Well, it continues, um, but great events often happen off stage and on stage. Say for the for the major one that begins the cycle of the death of Paul Horace Rubidoux, father of twelve year old Horace, for Foot and his characters. It's the aftershocks from these seismic shifts that are most telling. In the first act, young Horace learns his now widowed mother will not be taking him with her to Houston when she remarries. Off on his own in the second act, adolescent, a little bit older, Horace experiences the grim realities of life and death on a former plantation that now takes in convicts for its survival. In the third act of part one, and the rest of the acts, the young adult Horace navigates through an unrelenting, uh, unrelentingly harsh life. 
encountering rejection, betrayals, neglect, and temptation until he finds the restorative love of Elizabeth Vaughn, daughter of the town's richest and most distinguished citizen. What pruned his plays with a knowing hand? Even having read the original ones would be at a loss to recall what's missing. You'd be at a loss to recall what's missing. In fact, the drama feels expanded with place setting and transitional elements added to heighten the experience and make the combined work fluid. So the backstory is he wrote all of these plays way before when he was younger. But even just before he passed away, he was revising and re reliving those plays. And he had planned on putting more into screenplay form for, for the movies. And he had planned on reissuing the whole set again. Um, Jenny Dyer Pollan brings others color, uh, color to the uh, self-centered obliviousness of Horace's sister, Lilydale. In a single kiss, Virginia Collies are all characters. There's like 20-something characters in the play. And I believe that the movie and the movie version, they said there was something like 70 actors that uh, that did the stories. Um, in a single kiss, Virginia Cole, as the widow Claire, shows the emotional price she pays for her family's security. And Pamela Peyton Wright brings dignity and complexity to all her roles, all of her roles. Now, Haley Foote is also in this, and she's very, very instrumental in getting this, this uh, group of plays performed. And it says, as a family matriarch, Haley Foote has a Southern mother hen determination. Her loving blindness to her spoiled son's disastrous failings, though nearly absurd in the final piece, stands in counterpoint to a parental devotion Horace never experienced. Now, the movie itself, and I don't want to tell you too much because Dixie's going to tell you a bunch, um, but I'll go ahead and say that it, it was a 1985 movie. And it says here that the superb design team echoes Foote's ethic with grace. The opus opens with letters of the play's title cinematically coming together, proclaiming the beginning of each installment, but also signifying the fragmented nature of the work that eventually pulls together into a greater whole. Set designers brilliantly create an evolving yet connected world of memory and meaning as trains segue into parlors and go into swamps, dry goods stores, and cemeteries. Everything that is the flavor of small town. Much like its small town Texas characters, Horton Foote's 1918, was directed, which was directed by Ken Harrison, is a movie of such tight-lipped self-control and such distrust of fancied melodramatic conceits that it's not easy at first to get to know. 
In fact, I've saw some very negative uh, reviews of the movie, but I don't find it that way at all. The movie, which opens today at the Coronet, seems standoffish until one finds its rhythm. And of course, this was written in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1985, when it was going to open at the Coronet. At that point, that seems to be a conventional film, reveal, and it reveals itself to be moving, idealistic, about a time and place and people who, being so resolutely ordinary, become particularly familiar. The setting is the fictional town of Harrison, Texas. And as we said before, Harrison, Texas is much like the small town that uh, Horton Foote grew up in. The time is the hot early autumn of 1918, when the citizens of Harrison are doing their patriotic best to protect the home front from the Kaiser's fiendish hordes approximately 5,000 miles to the northeast. Every afternoon, a half a dozen of Harrison's male misfits, fellows whom even Uncle Sam doesn't want, drill on the courthouse lawn. The ladies of Harrison come to the second floor, one room headquarters of the Red Cross to roll bandages and gossip. Very familiar pictures, if, if you, you can probably see them in your mind or find them in, in images of, of people dressed as if they were nurses, folding up bandages, taking every kind of material they can possibly find so that they have them rolled up and have enough when they need it. They thought they were doing the work that would protect their soldiers, as they said, 5,000 miles away. Elizabeth's 17-year-old brother has flunked out of Texas A&M and is a major, and is in a major worry to his parents. He lazes about Harrison, gambles away money he, he doesn't have, dreams of enlisting, but spends most of his time at the Harrison Movie Theater, watching things like uh, Mary Pickford and Lafayette We Come. However, life in Harrison is far less serene than it initially seems. Present but unseen and striking with an awful sudden randomness that tests Harrison's uniformly Christian faith is the great influenza epidemic of 1918, which is a few months, which in a few months carried off 20 million people around the world, including 500,000 in this country. In 1918, it's like a medieval plague, one that breeds not in the squalor of ancient overcrowded cities, but in the well-ordered American cleanliness that is supposed to be next to godliness. I'll stop there for a second because it, you can't help but think about that influenza and today's uh, pandemic coronavirus that we're going through. We, this is a type of thing that hits everybody. So we, as a community of everybody, are doing all kinds of things to prevent ourselves from getting sick. And from there, I'm going to stop and I'm going to let Dixie take over.
Okay, well, you're right. I found this movie very interesting because it, it did relate to today. It made me think a lot about my own past. For one thing, uh, I am a native Texan, as I mentioned last week, and I grew up going to spending some part of each summer with my grandmother who lived in a small town called Stephenville, which is a real place versus Henderson. But this, the way Foot describes small towns, it could be any small town in Texas, mainly with the town square and the, and the stores that were there, the local stores, um, the picture show, as was in 1918. I remember going to the picture show, as it was called, uh, at, in Stephenville once a week. They'd have a new one come every Wednesday, so she would let me go and see the movie. Um, but it, it struck me, the similarities from that time and now, it made me feel more connected to my ancestors, to what my grandparents must have gone through and felt and the fear they had, which was not unlike today at all. Um, there were differences, of course. For one thing, we have it much better now. We are able to communicate with one another much quicker, much faster. Um, news gets to us in some cases maybe too quickly. But we are able to get a lot of information in many different varieties. That really wasn't the case then. In 1918, they were facing not only a pandemic, but a world war, one of the worst wars ever in our whole history of the world. Um, so there was this double whammy. And the world war was also one of the reasons the pandemic spread so widespread quickly as it did, with soldiers coming back and forth all over the world, different um, ships that were a lot of ships that were carrying supplies and stuff to different different ports. And then it would spread out across the land once it would once the flu would get to a port or another. 1918 brings all these points out in that it, it tones in on one town and the effect all of these things had on one town. But you could apply that universally. You know, just everywhere. Yeah. I I can imagine that you can because if, if you look at those dates 1918 is also in in Great Britain when women finally got the vote. And so that meant that over here in the United States, women were still protesting um, from 1918 to 1920 when the United States women finally got the vote. So imagine all of that going on in the midst of Spanish flu type of pandemic and and of course, that was the end of World War uh, One, but um, also trying to rebuild the United States and so forth. It, it had to have been quite, quite an effort. Um, the um, uh, affluent people who lived uh, during uh, that period of time, 1918, they... Uh, made it their mission to uh, come up with uh, even things such as clothing where you would have different types of masks and different types of clothing that matched. Women even went as far as having fur masks to match their fur hats and their fur collars. And um, uh, uh, there was also uh, I remember seeing some pictures of um, the types of breathing machines people were trying to quickly invent so that they could keep themselves going and so forth. Now, that's the affluent. Now, Horton Foote did not write about them. 
Horton Foote wrote about folks that the the colorful characters that were misfits and and uh, the the ones that really wanted to leave the town but maybe led them in the wrong direction, don't you think? Yes, now he does include some of the wealthy. In fact, Horace, the main character in 1918, is married to a very wealthy family or married into a wealthy family uh, in Henderson. So they're there, and you see their um, influence. But his, you're right, his direction is toward the ones that weren't quite so affluent or the ones that weren't successful. And so, that, that makes them much more interesting characters to me. That's what I think. Well. Even Horace himself has had struggles, and um, he's, he's making a living and doing okay. One part in the movie, he does buy a lot of war bonds. He bought, in the movie, it was $4,000 worth of war bonds. That was an incredible amount of money in 1918. It, it is today, too, in many ways. But if you can imagine how much that was then. He does it probably out of a sense of patriotism, but maybe out of a sense of guilt, too, in that he wasn't overfighting in the war. He was of the age where he could have done that. And most men did, or a lot of them did. He doesn't want to, though. He just he admits it. He just doesn't want to go to war. He wants to live, and he wants to be married. He wants to, at the time, he has a young daughter. He wants to watch her grow up. So maybe that was, in his way, his way of contributing was to give all he could versus going over there and actually fighting. Hmm. Why do you think Horton Foote decided to agree to write this screenplay for this movie? Because he had to give over the rights. He had to play first. He had to give over the rights to make a movie. Do you have any thoughts on why he might have done that? Well, some, that in that um, movies are a way of getting a story out to a lot of people. It is the media that a lot of people will watch versus many don't go to theaters, but they will watch movies. So maybe this was one of the reasons he did it. Um, as you mentioned before, he wrote a lot of other screenplays that became very successful. Yes. And yes. so maybe that was in his mind, too. Maybe this one could be successful also and getting his message out there. Um, so for his own economic Resources yeah. for his, his own success to get his stories there. Maybe if this one was successful, it could lead to others that he could make as well. I think also that he always wanted to be an actor. He started out wanting to be an actor. Yeah. He got into television, but yeah. he ended up writing for television. And so that ended up being his vehicle. And maybe the movies was his next step in, as far as writing goes in his vehicle right. to it, he has to become yeah. famous, but to be part of the whole experience of being in a movie, he wrote for it, for mm -hmm. the movies instead. Um, two of his children are actors, I think I mentioned, Haley. Yeah, yeah Haley was. Um, and his son uh, was also, or could still be, I'm not positive, but was also an actor. So um, I think you told me also that the, the movie has Matthew Broderick in it. Yes, it does. A very young Matthew, Matthew Broderick. He was very well acted in this movie. He did a good job. He plays um, the bad seed in the movie. This is the brother of the wealthy wife. And he, Hortonfoot, from what I've read, always included a bad seed in every family because he, as he observed, there always was one. 
And this made it more reality to put a bad seed in, in your family. I know I could admit to a few in mine. And so, um, he, he plays a young kid who flunks out of college. He comes home in disgrace. He has left a, a girl pregnant at the college. It was A&M, actually, that he flunks out of. And he comes home in disgrace. He gambles away a lot of money. His father is at wit's end. He doesn't really know what to do with him. Whatever he tries, he doesn't come through with it. They finally get him to take a job on a ship that would take him. It's a cotton ship that ships cotton everywhere. And he was supposed to work on that. And at first he was, oh, yay, now I'll get to go and travel the world. I can really do it. And before he was talking about wanting to go to the ward, which he never does. They get to Galveston, which is where he was going to catch the ship. But then he says he doesn't want to go. He wants to call home, tells him he's homesick. He doesn't want to do it. And he wants to come home. But his parents finally put their foot down and go, you're getting on the ship. You go. Goodbye. You know, you've got to go and do something with your life. So he was in it and he was very good and portrayed this this young kid that's really lost. And you mentioned that he uh, went to the movies before. I think the young kid was actually living through these movies, which oh, is a, you know, okay. many, movies are an escape in many ways. And he would go and he could pretend to be the hero of these movies mm -hmm. and especially the war movies. Cause as I was saying, he was always bragging about wanting to go and be in the war and defend his country and be the hero. Mm. So he would go to the movies as often as possible. Well, who else was in the movie? Uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, I would have to go back and look. It wasn't anyone that is now really, okay. Okay. really in the limelight that I could that I remember. So um, I'd have to go back and see. But they were, um, but it was a well acted movie, and it was it was done very well. It's a very sad movie, but it had hope too. Just as we have hope today, they are going to find a vaccine for this. Um, it wasn't as hopeful then that that would happen. The amount of medical progress in the last hundred years is indescribable. 1918, there were no computers. Mm -hmm. There was nothing such as that. Um, childbirth was even considered very dangerous. In one of the scenes, the woman, the wife of this of horse becomes pregnant and they're Everyone's a little afraid, you know, are you scared of the delivery? Are you afraid? Which was a reason to be in those times. Mm -hmm. Childbirth was dangerous in those times or could be. So that has progressed tremendously. Um, we just have a lot of advantages now that we didn't in 1918. And the coronavirus, as bad as it is and as horrible as every death we have experienced is, it's not quite as deadly. I mean, more people are surviving it than did survive the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So that was another um, difference, which we can be grateful for today. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about masks. I was thinking that's a similarity too, because today I was, people are making masks to advertise their businesses. They are making them to match their outfits. We can make them out of all different kinds of, Things. So that's kind of a similarity, too, that we're just tendency, what we have to wear, we'll like to accent it or make it our own. Um, I know that uh, uh, high school young ladies and gentlemen are still looking forward to football season. And here in Texas, homecoming is the big, big oh, thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the mum, the mum, the mum, the mum. <laughs> 
huge. It's so month. huge you can't even wear it. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we've been looking at advertisements. I'm at uh, Washington High School, and we've been looking at advertisement for moms that have the mask connected to it. So that really? you can get your stuffed animal, you can get your mom, and you can get your mask all in one fell swoop. Really? I'd have to see that. This I can't see the picture. This is how you wear a mom and a mask. It's all connected. All connected. All connected. So the so the mom is actually over here and it drapes all the way down. The way you know, like I said, in Texas, moms are a big, big thing. You just have no idea. There was one mom, her, her son's a, a senior, and uh, they um, were trying to decide whether they were going to actually buy all the stuff and make mm-hmm. something similar. And a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. Or if they were just going to order it. And she decided by the time she made it and figured out how this connects to this and the flowers connect to the drape at the bottom or whatever, that she would just go ahead and bite the bullet in order, order the mom. So, um, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, we're such a resilient people, and I think this is part of what Horton Foote tries to tell us all the time. When If, if you read anything that he writes, it, it we're so resilient. We're going to find fun, right. and we're going to find success in the midst of the pandemic that's going on right now. Or the one that happened a hundred years ago. We're going to keep going because that's just who we are. It's just human nature. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else you want to tell us about the movie? Um, Well, you're on the topic of hope and finding something positive in the midst of all of this. uh, The two main characters, Horace and his wife, do get the flu themselves. Very bad cases of it, but they both survived. So there was people that survived it. There was life that went on after all of the death. Unfortunately, they lose a baby to the flu. Mm. They had a 10-month-old little girl, which was devastating. You know, many people lost children, which is, in my opinion, the worst thing anybody could experience. But she does have a baby at the end who is born alive, who is born healthy, and so there was the hope that life will continue as horrible and as heartbreaking as it was to lose this child. They would then have to pull themselves together because now this new child will need them. And they will need parents that can provide and that will provide as happy a home as possible for the new child that they have. So um, there is always life after disaster, after horrible things that happen. We do, like you said, we do learn to continue to go on with any kind of grief. Yeah. It says here that uh, uh, Horton Foote adapted 1918 from a play, one of a cycle of nine, that's why I mentioned that before, examining life in a small town over a period of four to five generations. Uh, It says, and this is the writers talking, I have no idea where 1918 comes from, comes in the cycle titled The Orphan's Home. But the fact that there are works surrounding it must contribute to the feeling that the film really doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's all middle. Like the central chapters of a miniseries that began earlier and will go on after one leaves the theater. So it's kind of like life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that true of all, all life? Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
That it works so well can be credited to the clarity and discipline of the writing and to the quality of the performances and of the physical production. The settings not only look right, but sound right. 1918 manages to hear that special kind of hollow noise that footsteps make on floors of houses without basements, a genuinely rural sound. And as you pointed out, uh, uh, Matthew Broderick is the best known member of the cast and is awfully good as still as an awfully good as still uniformed young brother, a boy who, in his mother's phrase, spends all his time running up Fool's Hill. Um, the film is not only an artistic achievement, but something of a budgetary miracle. It was an independent film, and it and it cost a one point seven million to produce, which wouldn't even cover the cost of the limousines used in connection with most Hollywood films today. Mm-hmm. Isn't that quite interesting. Yes. What yes. do you think? Do you have Do you have something for us from the play that we could read? Uh, yes, we have scene one. This takes. This is the very beginning of the movie, and it takes place in a cemetery. Um, it's prior to Horace getting the flu, but the flu is raging in his town. He's visiting his father's grave, which doesn't have a tombstone, and he wants to purchase one. His dilemma is he's not certain which grave is his father's because there are three there, his father and two uncles, and none of them have been marked. So he's trying to think, well, where, where do I put this tombstone once I, I get it? In the, he's talking with the uh, cemetery caretaker, who is a black man named Sam, and it reflects the racial issues at the time in some ways. You know, he does he is realistic about it in those ways too. So, do you want to read this? Yes. Uh, okay. Who who do you want me to be? You can be. I'll be Sam. Sam is the caretaker. Okay. What you doing out here this time of day, Mr. Horace? I'm having a tombstone put in my father's grave. Mr. Dietrich has ordered one for me, but I don't know which one is my father's. Do you? No. When was he buried? In 1902. I don't know who worked here then. Was no marker on the grave? Must have been at one time. Um, See, there are three unmarked graves. My father is buried in one, my Uncle Cal, and my Aunt Lula are buried in the others. There are lots of graves out here, none of them marked. You have to get yourself a big, good tombstone if you want your grave to stay marked. Oh, isn't this flu terrible? Yes, it is. Had three white funerals last week, all from the flu. Two colored funerals tomorrow. I've just been over in the colored cemetery, helped dig in the graves. Who died? Delia Washington and old George Harris. George Harris? Yes, sir. My God. I ordered him a suit of clothes for Christmas. He just finished paying it out last week. Well, then they're going to bury him in it. Did they both have the flu? Yes, sir. Everybody's getting it. Black and white, not sparing anybody. I hear you're opening up a store. 
No, not for a while now. I took the money I'd saved for that to buy some war bonds last night at the rally. I figured there'll be plenty of time to open a clothing store when the war's over. We're winning, or so they tell me. I hope so. Well, I don't know how to figure this, Sam. I have a cousin living in Houston. Maybe she'll remember. I guess I'll just have to write her. Uh, Mr. Dietrich will just have to hold the tombstone till I can figure this out. A lot of people won't have anything to do with him. They tell me because he's for Germany to win. Well, I know that. I don't let, I don't let him get started on the war with me. He knows how I feel. Well, some folks say he should just be locked up for the way he talks. Mm, they tell me he's the he's for Germany to win. If I buy a suit, how much will I have to pay down? Whatever you can. Three dollars, five dollars. Then you pay it out so much a week. Well, how old was you when your daddy died? Twelve. I never knew my daddy at all. He died before I was born. How come you waited so long to put up a tombstone? Couldn't afford one before. <laughs> that That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, it, uh, it it is a good scene. It As I said, it reflects the flavor of the town and the relation, racial relations that there were, friendly but separate as it was then. Um, and it shows how the flu... The cemetery is just overtaken with flu victims. You know, every day there's somebody new that's mm. that's died of the mm. flu, and so the great the cemetery is getting very full. Um, everyone's scared, and Horace becomes, I think maybe too. He's looking at putting a tombstone at his father's grave because he knows his own death may be imminent. Who knows at this point in time? And so that was something he'd never done was take care of that. Yeah. So he wanted that done, so he, it would be done, mm. and he could. That's my interpretation, anyway. Well, I have truly enjoyed this journey we've taken taken in two weeks over the plays and the writings and the books of Horton Foot. And a, I, I, I'm telling you, then the, the fact that he lives so close to where we live, and he talks about places that we can relate to, it, I, I just feel like that is. A very, very special thing. And I love the idea of the small town, but I've said that before. Mm. And um, and the way that he fashions his characters is just amazing. Oh, he's amazing. He, he is a gift. And if you're looking for something interesting to watch or read, as she said, do check out Horton Foot. He's amazing. Um, I know just so many. And if you grew up in Texas and you're around my age, there's a whole lot there that you're going to recognize. Even the music he put into 1918, my grandmother sang me some of those songs. So it almost brought tears to my eyes to remember it because, you know, I remember her very fondly. Well, if you are interested in his plays in the original form, you can, you can purchase them one by one from a dramatist. Uh, also, they're on Amazon.com. His biography that we looked at uh Last week, or part of, of it is called Farewell, but that wasn't his first bi- autobiography. That wasn't his first one. The first one was called Beginnings. 
So, and both of those are available on, on, on Amazon and other booksellers. Um, so with that said, I'm going to say I'm Terry Woods and I have to go out into the big cruel world today. So, And I'm Dixie Cooper and I have to do the same. And Texas Storytellers is brought to you by Woodlands Online. You can watch this show, and I really hope you do, on our Roku channel over the air at KVQT HD 21. Listen to the podcasts on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or watch the video version on Woodlands Online. Hope to see you next time. Until then, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Mm-hmm.